This is the Average Guy Network, and you have found Cyber Frontiers show number 16, recorded on January 5th, 2014. Here on Cyber Frontiers, we explore cybersecurity, big data, and the technologies that are shaping the future, all from an academic perspective. I'm your host, Jim Carlson, broadcasting live from the AverageGuy.tv studios here in Bellevue, Nebraska. I'm frigid, very cold. I, I don't think it's going to get above uh, 10 degrees tonight. Bellevue, Nebraska, and we post a show with the world-class show notes out at the Average Guy. TV. If you have questions, comments, and contributions, of course, you can contact us. Love to send, have you send us those emails. Jim at TheAverageGuy.tv. You can track me down on Twitter, at Jay Collison. And now call in those questions, 402-478-8450, and we'll play those questions right here. Love to see if you guys could stump either one of these guys. So send us your questions, and uh, we'd love to answer those right here on the show. And now Cyber Frontiers is a part of the Geeks Network. Find the link to this show and many other podcasts, good, pretty good podcasts as well, out at the Geeks Network. That's just thegeeksnetwork.com. And joining me tonight from uh, their confines in all kinds of different places, Christian, I don't even, I really don't know where you're at. Welcome to Cyber Frontiers. How are you? And don't forget to turn your mute off. <laughs> Thanks. What a you caught, caught me completely <laughs> off guard. Um, I'm doing fine. Life is good. Good. Uh, back in the uh, state of Maryland, uh, where we where we like it, and all is going well. Good. Good. Good to have you back. And then uh, Ashton has not made his way back to Maryland. School doesn't start for another couple of weeks, so he's still home. Uh, Ashton, how are you? Doing well in the great state of New Jersey. So hanging out in the armpit of America for another <laughs> month. Hey, they call it the Garden State. The Garden State. That's nicer. That's nicer. It than... is. It is. I've done. I spent some time in New Jersey, and when last show we, I was stationed at Fort Dix, New Jersey, which is kind of down south, and uh, not. It's about the middle of the state. I just remember a lot of sand, when I was there. So uh, it, I had a good time in New Jersey when I was not. Really just saying not really <laughs> well guys we've uh, we made it through christmas we uh we made it through new year we're in 2015 uh, both of you guys uh we're looking forward to school i'm sure you're not but we are looking forward to school starting again so that you guys are learning a whole bunch more stuff but uh we've got some stuff maybe a quicker show today i guess it depends on what we want to cover uh, christian let me throw it over to you and uh, you can guide us through what we're going to talk about tonight sure so we're getting more into the nuts and bolts of one of the Hadoop projects that we talked about a while ago that we were going to do on the research platform. And that was essentially how would one go about mapping and learning about the entire IPv4 internet address space using a, you know, Hadoop sandbox, the one that we built and covered a couple of shows back. So Ash and I have started to make some progress on this. So we're going to talk a little bit about what tools uh, we're using to implement this and what kind of some of the groundwork operations that he and I are both doing along these lines and what types of outcomes are potential and what types of things are going to be need to we need to additionally develop in order to get to this place so um, with that I actually start with Ashton who is putting the groundwork in on the uh, part one of how one goes about this yeah so this really is based off of the program called Nmap, which is a, uh, a network scanning software that lets you have an idea of the different services that are running on ports, 
um, and potentially also the operating system. And uh, at a more granular level, you can even figure out, you know, is there a HTTP server running there? Is there SSH open? Things like that. So uh, it's often used by attackers. It can be used by attackers to figure out if there's vulnerabilities, but we're going to be using it for the more benign purpose of just getting an idea of what hosts are up and also hopefully figuring out the routes to get there. So the reason why it piqued our interest is there's a graphical interface for Nmap called ZenMap, which I think Christian has a little simulation running, which we'll show you in a little bit. But what it does is it comes up, it's a, Nmap is typically run from the command line, but ZenMap is the graphical side. And you can see some of these graphs that are created from scanning these ports. And the cool thing about that is you get an idea of how the networks are laid out based on this and you can click on the nodes and it'll uh, recalibrate it based on that so it, it gives you a better idea of the the graph in not the graphical in the sense that it's like a picture but the graphical in the sense that it's connected nodes um, and you get an idea based on that so that's what we want to do on a much grander scale we've talked in the, the past it's been done a million times scanning all of the ipv4 network space and while this is not so difficult if you're just interested in seeing if the hosts are up and if you know a specific port is open this becomes more complicated if you're also trying to find the trace routes along the way so you're trying to find the physical layout of it and the the graph layout of it and then do interesting things with that so the end goal for us is hopefully to have something where you can query a specific IP address and see all the adjacent nodes on the network to maybe five degrees of separation from it. And I just think that would lead to some powerful insights about what networks have a lot of the uh, the power and have the most connections in, in terms of adjacent nodes. So it should be an interesting project and it's kind of necessary for us to go out and you know, get the data ourselves because we don't have a, a, a data set that we can just use since we're not, you know, affiliated with a, a, a company that's bringing in a lot of this. So it's it's a uh, an interesting project from start to finish, and I'm looking forward to getting started on it. So I've already looked into something called distributed Nmap, which is another of the uh, the family of the Nmap programs. And what that is, is it lets you run Nmap from multiple nodes, so multiple computers, let's say, and have all of the results of that sent back to one server. So we already have the Hadoop sandbox set up, which is our little cluster for distributed computing, and I figured we might as well set that up there. So that's what I spent a good portion of today doing. And hopefully I can feed that data back into the Hadoop cluster, and we can use that as our data processing um, warehouse there. So that's pretty much where we're at now, and it'll be interesting to see how feasible it is to essentially run trace routes to every IP address, because these are really time-consuming uh, operations, as, as Christian's found out already. Yeah, and part of that, too, I think, is the, the DNS that it does, because it's not just measuring the hop. I think for each IP, when it, when it stops at the next hop, it runs a DNS query in each, you know, so if, let's say, it, let's say you're loading google.com and you're sitting like let's just say 20 servers away to get to google then you're doing 20 dns queries so that's what's taking up your time so technically you know we might be able to get that time down by not doing authoritative maybe caching the 
previous results or something like that. Yeah. Or doing the DNS queries every single time. Right, or doing the DNS lookups after the fact, maybe, yeah. and not using it to build the map. So there's a variety of things that you can do. But yeah, your your standard, you know, I'm going to run a traceroute command in Linux or in Windows or what have you, that will by default do DNS resolution at each hop. And so, um, you know, it's more or less a convenient tool when you're trying to debug things like is this maybe appearing like say a site is down for you um and it's up for other people well maybe that's because one of the peering partners in which you get your internet through something along that trace route is dead and your computer wasn't able to find another way another route to get around it and 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 find a path to the server so you know trace routes have characteristically been pretty successful debugging tools but i don't think ever anyone has really ever tried to use it to map out the whole internet in a well in an intuitive way at least so one of one of the goals that i think is interesting is you know you when we originally started talking about this project we were talking about scanning all of the ipv4 address space and just doing like a really basic thing like let's say we check for we check at each IP address to see if port 80 is up, right? And, you know, this may or may not be a fast way to, like, know IP addresses that are actually, you know, alive, serving content, making up a part of the internet, right? But with the trace route, you get a lot of data because you're getting a bunch of intermediate servers of how you get there, and that in and of itself is helping you map things, right? So, you know, originally when you think well how would someone go about scanning the whole internet you would probably just characteristically you know break up the entire internet subnets into chunks and have multiple threads be responsible for each chunk but traceroute is actually interesting because you know you're basically picking little pieces of the pie in random subnets at any given time so what would actually be really cool is to build a some kind of metadata manager, some kind of state manager that says which IPs have already been visited in that subnet and when that subnet is 100% visited. And the way you visit 100% of the subnet is by doing as many trace routes as you can at first before having to basically directly you know, ping a port 80 on an IP and see if it's there. So that's one cool thing about doing the trace route. Um, the other cool thing about doing the trace route that you really don't get when you're just doing, you know, a distributed IPv4 scan like we were suggesting is you don't understand how the Internet is connected, how the Internet's a living, breathing thing. And really, this gets us into a pretty cool topic in, you know, computer science that many people have gotten PhDs based on a derivative of theme, which is graph theory. And how does one from applying data structures to, you know, implementing them, graph theory is, has a, an incredibly large domain that spans from everything of, you know, neural networks and our artificial intelligence to how we did describe physical networks. So um, this is a really unique opportunity to say, well, how do you use big data tools to build a huge graph basically of you know millions of nodes and you know 
arguably millions by millions of connections or, or edges to those nodes. What does that look like? How would one build it? Um, and so, you know, Ashton and I, one of the things we struggled with when we originally implemented it, I don't remember what we were thinking that was giving us the roadblock about mapping it, but we, we always wanted to have a visual component to the project and we weren't really thinking trace routes and I can't, can't quite remember why, but eventually what you start to realize is, you know, the more trace routes you run to various or different hosts, eventually you're going to discover and see that, you know, Hey, um, when I queried two different websites, I got up to a certain point where I was going through the same traces or, Hey, maybe it gets all the way to the last one before the final destination. And there's other sites that I had previously connected that, you know, are connected to that node. Um, and so you can really do some pretty interesting things. Now, the only kind of natural problem with this approach is that by default, the data set will be biased to wherever you build the trace route from, right? So if I'm, let's say I'm doing this crazy distributive project on a cluster of servers that all sit in one particular network, well, that one particular network has its own interesting, unique way to get out to the internet, and it might hit different websites using different routes depending on how the you know, system architecture is designed, and that may not necessarily be the case for traffic coming back, right? So if you were then, if I were to do this out of a data center in Utah and build a world data set, it would look different than if I were to build this world data set out of New Jersey and do the same thing, right? So one interesting aspect to this is that you can't really build a data set that is going to look the same across you know, in terms of reproducibility of this worldwide internet network, it's not not necessarily possible nor feasible that everyone's network of the internet is going to look identically the same. Um, but I'm just going to give you a little glimpse of what one might look like at a very small scale and then kind of give you an idea of how one goes about, you know, broadening this to the masses. So um, is my screen share on? It's coming. There it is. All right. So this is the ZenMap tool. This is really a, a Windows graphical interface on top of um, the NMAP tool, which is widely popular in the Linux cybersecurity community. Um, and, and so what you see here is the dots in green. They're just, I put in a couple of sa sample host names, right? So, you know, Yahoo, CNN, Fox News, NBC News, Google.com. I tried to pick all three major newses from left to right, so I didn't look biased, but I didn't get time to do many of these. And what you noticed is basically I'm localhost, right? So I'm the guy in black. So if I click my black dot, it's going to center all these websites around me being in the center and these websites being the sites I'm going to, right? So the rings that are going around, think of them almost like uh, tree rings that you would see if you sliced a, a tree uh, uh, horizontally and looked at the rings. And each ring apart is a, a unit distance away from you in the center, right? It's kind of like a sonar um, map in that way. And what you can notice is that, you know, from my local host, I'm always going out of two or three of the same servers, and then I take some different pathways to get to my final destination. But notice how, you know, 
there's two websites that get all the way up to level three communications, which is a big internet provider on the East Coast. They cover, they're pretty much part of the internet backbone all along the Eastern seaboard, right? Notice how um, if I go to CNN or Yahoo, my traffic is routed through L3 communications, right? And so if I click that dot for L3, now I can see what it would look like if I'm sitting at the center of L3, what are all the different routes, right? But I want to go back to what it looks like if I'm at localhost, right? And again, if I'm at localhost, and now turned them all around, but look, look north, um, notice that level three, if you follow this line up, you see that um, level three is right here, the edge for level three, and that takes me to yahoo.com and cnn.com at the end of the day, right? Um, but notice how if I want to go to something like Yahoo, it, it never goes through the L3 network. It goes through the Quest network and then comes out through foxnews.com. If I want to go to NBC News, it goes through the Comcast network. And so we see it coming out of the uh, state of Maryland in through northern Virginia and out to a server that looks like it's in Colorado of all places, um, serving me NBCnews.com. So it kind of gives you a very basic, this gives you a very basic example of the internet being a living, breathing thing, meaning that, you know, how could one go about blacking out parts of the internet? Well, um, think about it for a minute. What happened with, this is a little bit of tie back to our conversation about North Korea a couple weeks ago. We said that North Korea only has, um, you know, four routers that connect you to the internet if you're coming out of North Korea, right? So in that map I just showed you, there are only four dots that take you to all those different websites on the outer ring. Whereas in the United States, there's 150,000 of those dots that I could potentially map and put on my board, right? So if I'm North Korea, it's, you know, I know if I take out these four nodes, then North Korea can't get to the internet and people who are trying to get content in North Korea won't be able to get it. Well, I think people somehow were able to understand this when we were talking about four routers in North Korea, the public got it and the average guy got it, whether or not they were technical. But in general, I don't think people really understand that is also a very true living possible thing in the United States. We've had definitely documented cases of, you know, congested traffic and pipes or, you know, certain parts of that backbone infrastructure that go out and have outages. And you're sitting here wondering, you know, why is my page loading slow? Or, you know, I have this great bandwidth package at home, but I can't, you know, this page is just taking forever. Why is that? Well, it's probably because one of those particular nodes that's usually the fastest way for you to get out is either down or congested or not answering your request and so your computer is then backtracking and say "Ooh, i gotta find another road it's just like it's the same thing as traveling salesperson in graph theory or you know for the average guy it's the same thing as how many different ways can i drive from buffalo to boca you know there's maybe three different interstate highways one of them has construction one of them has a car accident and so you take the third one because it's because it's the scenic route and it has no traffic and you know if you speed a little bit you're going to get there the fastest so <laughs> it's kind of the same thing it is the same thing with the internet and uh um, wait a minute christian that sounds like you've done that recently no 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 <laughs> me never i would never do that um and so what you know it's it's interesting because i feel like this is a big cyber 
research area in the way that, you know, I don't think anyone really has a grip on no, there's no one particular person that could, you know, rattle off their top of their heads, you know, oh, I'm sitting in this Maryland network. How, what, what are all the different servers and major providers that are going to serve yahoo.com up for me? I mean, you just, you don't know that, right? So one of the cool projects we thought that we would readapt this to is, um, using a distributed nmap to do the distributed trace routing and basically build this whole database from our perspective and our machines and then you know use graph theory and the data set coming out of hadoop to basically make it indexed and queryable so i could then type into a search box you know um tell me all of the websites and all the services that go through this host or this relay or this ip address and i could just type in a ip address and a host name and it would tell me everything it, it, it knew about it based on those graphs and typically we couldn't do something like this on a regular computer because of the size of the data right this is just a query we cannot return with a regular system so it definitely is an architecture challenge because the quantity of the scale that is required of putting all these different nodes and edges together is very significant. So the challenge here is not just kind of the, can you figure out what's going on on the internet, but um, can you really build and architect both a data set and a front end graphical interface that can handle this volume of nodes and edges? And you know, I think the scalability of graph theory is, you know, then you start getting into things like, huh, what does Dijkstra's uh, search algorithm look like on a Hadoop cluster? And these are the kinds of researchy questions that students make master's degrees and PhDs out of if they're if they're curious. So, um, yeah, and we need to be clever also, not just, I mean, the data is big, but the, the other problem is if these take a second each. It's like, okay, that's pretty good, and that's probably faster than what you're getting right now. Uh, then this will take forever. <laughs> it, it will not not literally forever, but like, I would guess in the tens of years range, because if there are what forty million IP addresses or something like that, I, I'm pretty yeah. sure it's, it's it's on that magnitude. Then you know that's I I, I think that's on the scale right there. Uh, the the problem then becomes, can you do this in a way where you're leveraging um, not only the distributed nature of our cluster, but also can you not have to retraverse the graph every time you want to get to a point and do that in a way that, you know, maybe if, if you're going along, you know, points one, two, and three, and those are common among all of your requests, then you don't need to do the DNS lookups for those every time, or you don't need to necessarily retraverse that and try and figure out where you're going every single time. Um, and if you can make use of where you know where the subnets are, you might be able to do it orders of magnitude faster. And that, I mean, that could be the difference between finishing this or not. I, I would be, I, I'm uh, curious to see how feasible this is in terms of time and not just space. Because I, I think that we can do it uh, for space is less of a um, constrict, it's, it's less constricting than time even in some cases. So, um, so when do you guys plan to kick off the query that starts it? I mean, or the the crawler. What I mean, how? And, and let me ask you this: How different is this than what Google's problem is with web crawling? Well, they're looking at search engine optimization, and we're a little more concerned with the just the hops in between. So it, it's not necessarily valuable to Google to keep track of adjacent 
um, you know, adjacent websites or adjacent node. Adjacent websites and adjacent nodes are a little bit of a different concept to begin with. They're not necessarily separate IP addresses if they're websites. Um, so I'm not sure that what we have would be the same thing as what Google has or what they're concerned with. Um, I'm sorry, your first question slips on oh, now. Just, well, no, just wondering, what did I say? Um, oh, when, when are you going to kick it off? When, oh, when do you well, think I mean, you'll start this? I'm not sure, but the thing that we have to think about is how we want to store this information. Um, one way that my naive approach would be is to just store the adjacent nodes for each node, which is like an adjacency list, if you've ever done graph theory, which is what I just had for a class, so that's my bias towards it. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's a more efficient way so we don't have to duplicate all of those nodes that would show up multiple times. Um, so we could start like tonight, but it wouldn't, I, I don't think that we would come up, we might have to start over again, which is not what you want to do. So it depends on uh, how long it takes us to figure out the structure of the database and the structure of the data that we're going to insert into it. Yeah, and I, you know, I think the other thing too is a fair amount of the design challenges are right up front, right? Not even before you get to the graphical front end, just figuring out how you're going to build these distributed crawlers that are efficient about trace routing. You know, you get into those issues of when does it make sense to a DNS to do a DNS query here? When does it make sense to hold off? Um, Ash and I have been going back and forth about what is the most optimal way to store this data in HDFS that takes up the least amount of space and lets you um, analyze the data as quickly as possible. And we've talked about everything from JSON files to compressed ASCII text to, I mean, you name it. So um, building something... You know, the the graphing algorithms and all that stuff is all well and good and is very well documented, but, you know, how does this particular data set need to be stored smartly is a huge question that, you know, you have to answer hopefully right the first or second time so that you're not making more work for yourself in the long run. Yeah, and because of the way that we're doing it, it's going to end up not just as a graph, but as a specific type of graph that's really a tree because it's all from the same source. So there's not like, we don't, the, the, the distinction there is each node only goes to a, a, a node level deeper than itself. So it's not like there's connections on the same level. We're not running a trace route from each of those hosts really. It's just like a point on the way to another point. So uh, it'll be interesting to see if we can take advantage of that so that we can store it more efficiently. Yeah, and you know, I think that by and by and large, there's probably multiple successful ways to actually do the storage of this particular data set. It's just it's going a significant challenge is actually knowing whether or not one method is particularly better than the other because you could get to the end of it where it's like okay now I'm actually searching the IP from this front-end graphical interface and the response times are very similar between when I store it this way and store it this way you know is it faster in one part of the algorithm and slower in another or is it just that my data sets are both comparable I mean those are all things that you kind of have to test in isolated cases one at a time to really figure out where your performance enhancements and bottlenecks actually are yeah, and I think we'll get some uh, interesting data that's not necessarily related to the graphs at all as well. Just the results of the domain names would be interesting. Um, 
for example, there's been a lot of study, I've read a couple studies on how you can have a pretty good idea of whether a domain is malicious or benign just based on the name of it um, using different metrics about where it's located, the length of it, uh, the some of the words used. So if we could inject some blacklisted uh, DNS into the the results that we get um, and compare the two, we might come up with some interesting results there. And that's just one application of this. Um, so that I'm crazy about good data sets, and I see this as like the mother of all of them. Um, just having that full IPv4 network being scanned. So I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, I just hope that we can do it in a way that it's it's useful and um, time efficient. So remind us again of the box that will do the physical this physical work. How much storage? I mean, just give an idea of of in either one of you. When we think, if you know, the average guy think from a PC perspective, uh, how, how, and I know you, you haven't, maybe you haven't projected yet, but what do you have that it's going into right now? I mean, it's not uh, super huge, but it should serve our sta our up to what we need. It's an HDFS cluster, which is the distributed file system for Hadoop, and I think we have three terabytes right now. Um, but it should be easy. I, I know right now the three terabyte drives are really cheap, so we're thinking of picking up a couple of those. But for starters, we have three one terabyte drives, um, and the data is replicated once. So anything that we would lose on one of them would be copied on the other two. Um, so it's not like it's not necessarily hard to grasp if you've already worked with one terabyte drives. But considering that the type of data is important, like storing a, a movie. Is a lot different than storing, or let's say it's a you know 30 gigabyte movie. Is a yeah. lot different than 30 gigabytes of text. Uh, 30 gigabytes of text could have taken it, lifetimes of 100 people writing all the time to fill up, and not even. Whereas a, a 30 gigabyte movie might only be an hour and a half. So it, I think for this particular format, if we're only storing you know 20 bytes for an IP, which is minuscule then you have to imagine that we can fit yeah. many millions more than we even need to. I think the analogy here is uh, how granular is your data set, meaning you can have two data sets that are both, let's say, 30 gigabytes, but depending on how granular the data set is depends on how large, the, the, I guess the not the quantity because they're both 30 gigabytes, but uh, the the density really it's a it's a the density of your data set it sounds bizarre but yeah, think how much of information it, did you get think of it it's the same thing as a computer monitor right you can have two monitors that are both 30 inch monitors but one might be 1920 by 1080 resolution and one only might be you know 720p resolution so you can have the same physical dimensions but one gives you a better picture in hd and one gives you a standard f picture so um that's the same thing with these data sets, right? Going back to like a movie or let's say like a database of images, right? The the text of all these fine points may describe a longer period of time than just this one image that takes up the same amount of space. But that's because in this particular case, I'm thinking about the image as being that flat two-dimensional panel. But if I think about it in that next kind of third density dimension, so to speak, 
what if I now I'm thinking about the image in terms of each individual pixel and maybe there's something in each of those pixels that is telling me something that I need to know about then all of a sudden your data set has a more it has more density than what you originally assigned it um, the example I always give is cat scans right um, when NASA does what's called non-destructive evaluations and techniques uh, there's a whole branch of mechanical engineering dedicated to NDE which basically is how can you kind of forecast failures in a mechanical physical structure um, using these CAT scan volumes so obviously you know there's destructive testing where you you know test something until it breaks but there's non-destructive testing where you don't want this thing to break it's maybe a maybe it's a wing on a production or not wow I sound like a computer scientist maybe it is a wing on a real flying aircraft and you wanna know is this thing still structurally sound well what you'll do is you'll end up taking a 3d scat uh, cat scan or volume image of what's going on in this wing and all of a sudden now in three dimensions you're looking at each of those pixels and typically a scientist will look at these volumes and they'll look for where the microfracture occurs what type of fracture it is what this means in terms of the material that's being used and so forth um, now imagine that you're trying to get a computer to use AI or machine learning to look at the pixels and based on the averages of color values in certain places tell you whether or not there's a microfracture buried somewhere in this huge CAT scan volume that you know normally scientists are sitting there calling through layer by layer looking for where this microfracture is you know that's the that's the difference so density is always relative uh, which which is a, a difference a distinguishment from when we say you know one monitor two monitors both 30 inches one has 720p one has 1080p that's always the same you're never gonna change that but when you're doing data science in these projects the density is relative to the project and the goals of what you're trying to find and based on how fine comb you need it to be to get what the answer you're looking for determines how dense it is and typically that computation and that density is proportionally scaled meaning that the more dense your data set the more your CPU is going to have to work at it but in terms of what's on the hard drive it's the same physical space being stored and it's the same amount of disk speed and read write speed you're going to need to do the analytics yeah, so <clears throat> we pretty much have the idea laid out there, and I think we now just need to get the, the structure there. Um, we're looking at interacting, instead of directly with the Hadoop file, distributed file system, um, we were thinking of using HBase, which I had done a post on on the website before, and using that again to store this information. It's a NoSQL database, which is good because the format of the individual trace routes um, will probably be different each time there will be different amounts of information and potentially different things for each one so it gives you a little bit more flexibility there so that's uh, that's another thing that we're going to be looking at when we're doing the the database restructuring yeah and actually the cool thing about that too is one of our end goals with the you know user interface would be to be able to just say you know if I type in this IP construct the graph of all the nearest nodes let's say in a five mile radius if you're driving on a highway we'll just make that analogy right now um, give me everything in a five mile radius or 
if we're going to talk computers in a 30 millisecond hop radius, right? And um, that is really conducive to like a SQL query, but obviously this is not SQL data, but Hive uh, gives you that opportunity to basically run these Hadoop HDFS interactions using traditional SQL-like queries that then get translated into, well, it, it, traditionally MapReduce, but there's kind of other techniques of doing that now that are just as relevant, I think, in terms of getting better performance, but doing the same thing in the long haul. So. Yeah, so, I don't know, I don't have much more to say to this until we do more work on it, but uh, that's kind of the the some of the details on how we're thinking of implementing it. Do you have anything else that you want to go over for this? Yeah, no, I think that's a wrap on this particular project. Like I said, this is kind of the recurring update on what's been going on with this. Uh, when we come back in two weeks, we're going to talk a lot uh, with uh, a guest from earlier on, uh, maybe show number four or five, uh, Dr. Jim Pertolo, um, and we're going to get back into some really cool topics that a lot of people loved hearing about the last time. Um, so look forward to that. That's uh, He's a man of many words, and all the words he says are intelligent, whereas mine are only like half the time I get them right. So um, he's he's got a lot going on in his head, so always uh, love having him on the show. And um, I do want to follow up back on the North Korea thing, though, because I, I still find this fascinating. I still find this – I still believe this is going to be the one thing – in terms of cyber that gets written in the history books for this time period like i said i don't yeah maybe there'll be brief minute references to the wall or the home depot credit cards and all that kind of stuff but you know going back to this i find it fascinating that um you know we are there seems to still be this ever-growing dynamic between the cybersecurity kind of industry and government saying yes north korea did this and the cyber professionals being very skeptical and not trusting that um but uh, the uh, I, if you didn't see it in your news feed this week the united states went forward with um imposing sanctions on north korea over this thing so apparently they're pretty convinced so it, it's still to me interesting um the facts and cyber forensics that are being used to construct and put those things together and um it, it's something to keep your eyes uh, peeled for because there's dynamics taking place here that are in in my opinion kind of first time on the public eye, public eye and, and radar yeah i i find that hard to believe in some cases uh I wonder what information they see that we aren't seeing because to the casual observer, it, it doesn't necessarily make sense for North Korea to be connected to this attack beyond the fact that the movie was insulting to their leader. But I feel like there's just not the technical knowledge or firepower there to make this happen. And although, yeah, maybe it was routed through their servers, I feel like these Guardians of Peace uh, activist group are not necessarily directly affiliated with North Korea uh, and must have had some sort of internal connection or some sort of social engineering attack that they used um, to, to route Sony so thoroughly. Um, so I, I'm skeptical to, to say the least regarding the accusations towards North Korea, but Perhaps they have information that I'm not aware of that is very that condemns North Korea as the the perpetrator of them. It's it's like so many other things we'll never know. 
maybe yeah. 20 years from now, we'll actually know the truth. Lots of things about World War II, which was a long time ago, uh, coming out now. or in the last 10 years that, uh, of course, we didn't know about. And so who knows? Um, an act of war, I, I, I don't think so, but uh, certainly an act of sabotage. And how difficult would it be to necessarily route this through their <laughs> servers and back out, you yeah. know, to, to make it appear to. I mean, if you're going to be that sophisticated and have an insider, how hard would it be to kind of make it look like it was them? Or how much of an excuse does the United States need to, uh, to pick on North Korea? So, yeah. you know, could I mean, be that as well. Still, I feel like if this, uh, an act of war might have been if they somehow dismantled our critical infrastructure. Sure. That w or, or Come on, Sony's a critical infrastructure. There's movies, for God's sakes. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yep. In the, actually, in the long run, it might have benefited us because now it's uh, on the cheap on these, on like YouTube, it's $7 instead of going to the movie theater to see it for right. $12. So the American public... Unless you had vested interest in Sony or literally investments in Sony, not super affected by it. Again, I, I've said it before, I'll say it again. Sony Attacking Sony is not the way to bring the American public to its knees. Um, I, so I, I feel like if they were serious about an act of, of cyber war, um, this is looks more like something that a, a group with more limited resources and, and less experience would pull off with some sort of internal uh, help. Yeah. And you have to yeah. imagine that there were disgruntled Sony employees, especially based on the emails that were leaked regarding, you know, oh, this actor, sick of their movies. Uh, this isn't working. You know, if, if, if uh, Adam Sandler has one more movie, I'm going to kill myself. It, it's just things like that make you wonder that, yeah, maybe one of these people is going to get let go. And they're like, I'm taking it down with me. Uh, and not necessarily North Korea plotting out how to systematically destroy America. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, Ashton, I think your assessment is, is a good one, a good and valid one. I, I, we, we, there's, there's, you know, we're, we don't have a lot of access to some of yeah. the information it's, that we it's need. All, it's yeah. all just speculation without the hardcore cyber yeah. forensics that they must have access to. And I'm... I don't pretend to know what the FBI agents that are doing the analysis on this know, but uh, it's it's it, I, I'm curious <laughs> to say it, the it, least. It makes for an interesting case study that I think, uh, to Christian's point, I think we'll be talking about this, whether it was corporate espionage or an act against the country, or was was from them or through them, or or they didn't do it at all, but somehow we you know they're being blamed for it. I think it will be a case study uh, that, uh, that gets looked at for quite a while yeah. and we'll have a lot of grounds because I think it's interesting enough. It's not so cut and dry that you just go, oh, that's okay. That's it. They stole credit card numbers, you know, and now they're in the hands of Russian hackers, right? It's, it's such a mystery, right? Yeah. There's so many things out there that we're still kind of going, well, that doesn't make any sense. Well, it's, it's got a lot of... Uh, just a lot of appeal from like a story it aspect. It is a like, movie. Oh, there was a movie. It is. It should be a movie <laughs> it, about it how this itself movie is a movie. It, I mean, what, what a lot if of the joke was on us and this was, right? I mean, you know, you kind of go. Uh, and I, I talked about that last time, right? There's too many things that have happened that would yeah. 
not be that way. But it isn't it. It does feel like a movie in some ways, you know. Yeah, but I, I don't think that from a cyber attack perspective. I mean, it's impressive that the their ability to get through to every point practically for, to every database to these the very loosely secured but still impressive that they were able to do it so yeah. aggressively and get to every single one of these things and map them out and just tons and tons of information that was leaked that's that's crazy i i would still say this is second to stuxnet for a lot of reasons not least because of the way that stuxnet was executed was meant to be very uh, very secretive and was not detected for a long time and I think had a lot more dire impacts uh, on well, the... It was, meant, it was meant to be destructive, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. and I, I think it was more successful to that end than, than this was. Um, but I, I would say that nothing else comes to mind that was was bigger than... Except Stuxnet, that was bigger than this. So I, I still... And, it, and like I said, you know, because of the media appeal, it might be more in the public side than even Stuxnet was at the time. Um, but... I'm not sure that the hacker prowess was necessarily quite as high. Yeah, that's cool. Mean, it, and it's it's a little bit different in the sense that um, Stuxnet was going outbound. This is the first one inbound that yeah. I think was this intense. Well, for Americans, right? Hey, yeah. we're okay with it. Right. It's not us. <laughs> if it was, if it was someone hacking the the grid, you know, the power grid on the eastern seaboard, and it takes down, you know, New York, Washington D.C. and We'll spare New Jersey on this in this example. <laughs> you know, people are then it's a big deal, right? Yeah. From that from that standpoint. So I think you're right. We flip these and it becomes it becomes a, at least in Americans to to the American uh psyche from that We, we had the easy retaliation too, with only those four points to knock out their entire outbound <laughs> internet. Know. You know? It wasn't like that, very hard, was it? That might have been as easy as their which I assume they had some internal guy, but the, yeah, it, it might yeah. have been even easier than their job. I know I, I mentioned it before. It's hard enough to get information out of Exchange when it's working, and you're the admin, yeah. and you have the passwords. <laughs> you're supposed to be able to access <laughs> right, it. Exactly. Well, that yeah. was just a, a simple distributed um, DDoS attack, and I think I have redundancy there, but you, you get That's the right. idea. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it, referring to the 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 next day or yeah. or recently when when yeah. North Korea went down for a day or two from that standpoint well it's it leads for interesting days that we have and lots of great stuff to talk about and uh, we we don't pretend to have any inside information here at Cyber Frontiers from that standpoint all speculation just on our part and uh, and so interesting looking from the outside yeah. uh, looking in but and fun stuff to talk about for sure and hopefully we'll have the all of the, well, at least from New Jersey and Maryland, all the hot points to, to North, those, those four North Korea servers. Um, and I, I think that might, tying this back into what we were talking about before, might be an interesting way to approach this as going country by country and doing the, uh, the subnets like that so that we have a good geographical distribution. Um, and I think that's going to also reflect the way that they're physically laid out with those routers. Um, it kind of makes sense that if you're going to go to a domain with that KR domain name, which is uh, Korea, then it's going to follow the same path pretty much every time. So maybe we can leverage that uh, just as an example so that we don't have to resolve all of those points every single time. Mm. So, yeah. 
And this is all, you're going to post this all on Cyber Frontiers Labs, right? CyberFrontiersLabs.com, you're going to, some of the stuff that, as you work on this? Yeah. Yeah, which, which by the way, let me just mention that Ashton killed it with his last uh, write-up about the sentiment analysis, got some coverage in uh, the Crazy Works Cybersecurity InfoSec magazine, and caught like 100 click-throughs on Twitter in like five days, which almost broke my record, only second to... Uh, show number 13 on uh, on the exploring through the Twitterverse, which pulled in a hundred followers off Twitter to come listen. So uh, cool. Nice work on that. Ashton. Congrats on that thanks. Ashton. Yeah. Good work. And thanks to Samantria for their semi public sentiment analysis. So yeah, yeah I'm glad some, that people were interested in that. Some good stuff. If you're a cyber frontiers, if you're a regular cyber frontiers, even if you're just first time, uh, that uh, cyberfrontierslabs.com uh, is kind of the test, the test bed, so to speak. A lot of the interesting posts uh, go out there. This is where these guys post kind of what they're doing. We, of course, post the show over at theaverageguy.tv, and so if you're, you come across this, uh, sometimes folks are listening to us on, we, we've distributed this out. In fact, there's one cyber network that we've put this on. And if you're listening to it there, you can come over to uh, theaverageguy.tv. That's the network, and subscribe uh, to the show if you want to get it regular on a regular basis. If you want to follow along, if you want the show notes and you want to follow along uh, with what these guys are doing, Cyber Frontier, no S, I've said S right. twice now, yeah. Cyber Frontier Labs, S is at the end, dot com. Uh, we'll get you there. And, of course, all those links will be in the show notes at theaverageguy.tv slash CF016. Uh, for this show as well. Christian, before we go, you want to talk a little bit about our, our Maple Groves project and uh, just kind of what we're doing there? Yeah, so we are now well into the 2015 launch. Uh, we talked a little bit. I think there's going to be home tech tips coming out this week about it. That goes into some detail. Maybe but yet tonight. Yeah, so um, we are now making public the hosting platform that has run websites like the average guy and abroad and uh, whether it's a site that gets 100 hits a day a casual blog or a site that gets 22,000 plus hits a day we're running a wide gamut of those on this platform and um, we really have done a lot of work to make this a platform that is reliable secure private isn't you know tied into things sucking out your data and is just fast um and, and the way we do that basically is by taking all that upper level management clutter and cutting it out a lot of it is my own custom code and configuration and i've this has been a project that has really gone on for four years in closed beta, right? I mean, the sites like the average guy that have been hosted on it, this has been closed. It hasn't been a public offering. So we spent a lot of time working out the kinks, and we now have um, dedicated hosting with Verizon Fios Business and uh, high-speed fiber optic. And for 10 bucks a month, you can basically come on the platform, get unlimited bandwidth, have a site that runs just as fast as the average guy or Biosmods or any other of those websites. Um, and, I, you know, I think the biggest success story to show just how fast and fine-tuned we've gotten the platform is, is there's this really crazy game called Elite Dangerous that is just one of the most obsessive-compulsive games I think that's out on the market. So there's a, a website that, you know basically helps people with one of the aspects of the game and so it's very popular because it's for trading and uh it gets like 24,000 hits a day and has about you know at any given time 300 concurrent users 
pages pop up like nothing elite trading tool.co.uk um, and so you know there's just a wide variety of sites that we're running on this the platform handles it really well and it's a great way basically to not have to get sucked into the rabbit hole that I, that even I did as a starting out webmaster or blogger we all go through the same process we start out paying eight ten bucks a month at a you know shared hosting provider like IX web hosting and you know the support the support tickets suck and then you can't you know once you start getting up to a couple hundred concurrent users or start getting any kind of real traffic it's slow and the page sits there and and you're like oh i gotta get off this so then you go over and you move to a vps and then you're paying high-end dollar you have to do a lot more configuration and you know before you know it you've moved two or three times before you really find something that you like um you know with this everything is really kind of custom custom curtailed and is based on all the experiences I've had hosting a variety of different websites that have different requirements. Um, I like to think the platform's especially uh, tuned for, you know, things like WordPress based sites, so LAMP stacks. Um, and it's also the platform for podcasters. Um, that $10 a month plan that gets you on the high speed web container for your website um, comes with 50 gigabytes of disk storage and when Jim and I looked up how many podcasts you could store on that, you could store eight, eight years worth of your audio for podcasts before even having to think about a minor storage upgrade. Yeah, based on what we do here at TheAverageGuy.tv. So right. we, we run pretty long podcasts. So Right. And, yeah. and, and because of, um, you know, you know the disc is great but you know it's it's unlimited bandwidth so it's not like you're gonna have to worry about oh i got you know x number of listeners coming on am i gonna hit a quota which if you're on shared hosting or you're on vps hosting they monitor those things pretty closely um so again we've we've also set this up as a scaled thing so the pipe that we have for the platform scales proportionally to how many customers and users are on it right so right now it's uh 50 50 pipe which really puts out about 65 65 pretty consistently and as customers come on and we see the pipe getting used up we proportionally allocate up to uh, a full half half gigabyte line uh, 500 down 500 up at which point if that were to ever get maxed out we add another line and split in half so everything is load balanced there's a load balancer um, failover and live migration the databases are backed up on a daily weekly monthly basis so we have images of all of that um, your web container if it were to ever have a, a hardware failure or a software failure is replicated to another environment that syncs every 30 minutes so at, at most um, you know unless you've uploaded a change to your web server in the last 30 minutes you know your database is obviously going to be live so you're not going to really see any changes in that department so you know really kind of dynamic uh, failover rollover environment and if for some reason the web container isn't high enough performance for you which I mean, unless you're something like that elite trading website, I don't know how on earth it could be. Um, you can go up to our dedicated hosting plan for um, 30 month, which gives you your own dedicated CPU cores, RAM, box, you name it. And those are those are the types of setups that go for you know the ninety hundred dollar a month plans on the internet. But you know we've really worked to architect this in such a way that we cut all the overhead prices. You know. Um, 
the support streamline. I like to think that you're, you know, it's a, it's obviously a smaller company than big things like a Bluehost or IX Web Hosting. So you're dealing with humans like me and and other fellows. And um, as this thing scales up and we get people. Um, other smart people from the University of Maryland will be helping with those support tickets and those requests. So it's not like we're going to be uh, shorthanded if, if you guys support the platform with yeah. um, coming over to it. So, um, you know, I think it's Christian. I think that's a fun, it's a fun project. And I mean, if you're, if you were thinking about starting a website or you, you know, you wanted to bring something, you want to, you want to, you know, dip your toe in the water, or, uh, do a WordPress instance, something along those lines. I think this would be a great opportunity to jump in. And do it with people you know, right? If you're in our community. I just got an email from a guy today who signed up for the newsletter. By the way, if you want to uh, jump in on the network newsletter, head out to theaverageguy.tv and get signed up for that. And uh, he had signed up for it, and I sent a note back and why you listen. And he goes, I just he goes, I just love the community. Everybody's just so nice to each other here. And uh, that's not super common among tech communities. Uh, you can get wrapped up in some tech communities, that uh, little flamers, little trollers that are out there. And uh, this one, we just don't tolerate that kind of stuff. And so, if you're if you're doing that kind of stuff, uh, we're gonna we're gonna boot you for the most part. So it's great community and a great opportunity to hang out and uh, give this a try. Again, I the average guys hosted on it, and and it's been fun to. I went through that evolution with you, right, Christian? Yep. We've we've gone through these steps of the evolution, and I've had a I've had a great time um, doing that, but. Um, it, it's just a great opportunity to jump on this. So if you were thinking about doing this, this might be the right time. If you're thinking about jumping in on a small business and, uh, and having fun with us as we kind of run this ride, and Christian's intent, you know, he's learning a lot through the process as well as our, the intent there is to give you just the best service possible. See where we can grow this thing. If you'd like to jump in on the ground floor, you can say you are one of the first, yeah. how, many, how many first 25 customers? Yeah, pretty on, much on the platform, right? And I mean, the the if you really want to know, well, just how fast is this thing? Go to theaverageguy.tv. That's the you know, there's your there's your ten dollar a month web container plan. Yeah. Also, keep in mind that you know, shared hosting. One of the biggest pitfalls is they love to overcrowd people on servers, and I always make sure there's. A, a hard cap so that there's no, no crowding and squeezing out and people are you know coming up for air to try and get their website to load a page so um, you really get that benefit and like I say your data stays secure and private and off the public cloud infrastructure so if that's a if privacy and encryption is a selling point for you it's on this platform um, even in our administrative infrastructure we're the people that go the extra mile with cybersecurity. So, you know, you're not going to be logging into your FTP account with a username and password. It's going to be an automatic key that's sent to you that does RSA encryption. So uh, it's, it's a pretty unique infrastructure that is very unlike any type of web container you're going to buy on the Internet for that kind of price. Yeah, I think that's the point is that it's not like this isn't just your shared host provider at one of these big companies. And so, uh, great opportunity. Christian mentioned, although he covered most of it here, oh, we did it. We're going to do a home tech tip that we're going to release. And so, if you want to hear more about it, we go into a little more in depth on it. Not too much. I think it's 10, 10 minutes maybe on that uh, over at theaverageguy.tv. All right. Well, as we bring this in for a landing, guys, thanks for coming out tonight on, uh, on this Monday night. Christian alluded to it next Monday or two Mondays from now, which is the, the 19th of January. We're on at 4 p.m. Central, 5 Eastern. We've moved up the time frame a little bit. I'll be doing it live from the Gallup Studios um, there uh, to for our guest. So if you just, uh, I'll make note of that. I'll actually make that, um, 
that show here in the next uh, couple hours and put that out. Just if you want to get registered for it, you can. And uh, 4 p.m. Central, 5 Eastern, January 19th for the next Cyber Frontier. So we will do it. Uh, we'll do it all over again. Uh, one quick reminder too: if you're purchasing on Amazon, we have a we have a tech scholarship fund that we actually run through Home Gadget Geeks. Just a fun little uh, way for you to support. The network, and uh, if folks want to buy and test that equipment, write about it or come on the podcast about it, we buy that for them. You get to keep it, test it, review it, and actually we purchase microphones for these guys and arms and that kind of stuff to help support the network through that tech scholarship fund. And if, you just, if you're shopping at Amazon, go to Amazon, go to theaverageguy.tv slash Amazon, and that, uh, that will help support it. And many of you did over the Christmas holidays, and so we want to say thanks for doing that as well. If you're a regular listener or user of that link, We'll be back in two weeks. I want to thank you for coming out tonight. Christian and Ashton, thanks for doing it. Appreciate it. We'll see you guys in two weeks. Good night, everybody. Good night.